Okay, tonight we're talking about Calvinism, and we will look at what the Synod of Dort came up with. People use the acronym TULIP, so we'll look at that tonight, what that means. My take on it, but it's okay uh, that people differ on some of these. First of all, the term Calvinism itself is a misleading term, but since it's so commonly used, we're going to use it. There are people who are very well educated who will agree with my take on this issue, and there are those who are very well educated who will disagree with my take on this issue. But we want to see, as best we can from Scripture, how God works in your life regarding your salvation. But we don't want this just to be an intellectual exercise to arm you with ammunition so that you can spend a bunch of time trying to win arguments with people about this issue. Don't spend too much time doing that or on this issue. How much time you should, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I've seen a lot of people get in endless debates instead of witnessing, and I think Satan can use that as a distraction, so don't do that. What we're covering tonight is a result of a council, Dort, D-O-R-T, which is short for Dordrecht, that met to reply to some teaching going on that was spreading about God that they thought was not biblical. So, in your notes, it says TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, a summary of the Council of Dort, or Dordrecht, that was done by, and they met in this council in 1618 and 1619 by the Dutch Reformed Church. And so really, I think the best term for it is Dort theology, not Calvinism, because John Calvin did not necessarily believe everything, and then he also believed some other things that may not uh, that they may not have jived with. Uh, Calvinism is a bad term. Reformed's a bad term because in the Reformation, not everyone was what we call today Reformed. Not everyone agreed with the tulip, per se, and so I think Reformed is even a bad word. But those are the two buzzwords used today, so we'll use them. Okay, number one of the tulip is total depravity. That's the T. Total depravity. It is the idea that you cannot come to Jesus Christ on your own. You do not have that ability. You're not smart enough or spiritual enough. Look at Romans 3, 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter if I fall short with my neighbor. That's not the comparison. The comparison is with God. I don't have to be as good as my neighbor. I have to be as holy as God is. And so obviously no one is. So what does this passage say about sin? Romans 3, 23. Well, it says that at some point, I don't care if it's 2 or 20, it's not going to be 20, everyone sins. At some point, everybody sins. They end up giving in. There is a sin nature we all inherit from birth, and you will always end up giving into it. You can't help it. So Scripture's clear there. Look at John 6. So hang on left. Go John 6, 44. And then we'll look at John 16, 7 and 8. And then we'll look at Hebrews 3, 7. So, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, so John 16. No one can come unless the Father draws him, Jesus says. Then John 16, 7 and 8. Jesus again, red letters. Unless you have the ESV, they don't put those in red letters, nor do they capitalize the deistic pronouns. 
So red letters, Jesus talking, John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, that makes no sense. Why would it be better if Jesus wasn't with them? That doesn't make any sense to us. But here's his point. If I don't go away, the Helper, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I do leave, I'll send him. And when he has come, he will convict. When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That word convict in the Greek literally means to win an argument. So you're not arguing with someone when you share the faith. That means they're probably not ready. The Holy Spirit does that. He takes care of that angle. He wins the argument with them to show them the, the, the state that they're in spiritually. Then, jump over to Hebrews 3, 7. So with the point with John 16, Holy Spirit has to do that. Look at Hebrews 3. So hang a right. And go Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today you will hear His voice. Yeah, today if you'll hear his voice, and then the first part of verse 8, do not harden your hearts is in the rebellion. So there is an urgency there in 7 and the first part of 8 to responding, and if I don't, there's the danger of not responding to the Holy Spirit quickly is hardening of the heart. So Scripture's clear on that. So the question is, what do these passages say about your salvation? Well, very clearly, they teach that God initiates my salvation. Now later we'll look at whether Scripture seems to say I have the ability to resist that or not. But God has to initiate that. The Holy Spirit has to come to you and reveal to you the mess that you're in because of your sin and then the price Jesus paid for your sin and the fact that not only did Jesus do that but you need what Jesus did. You have to apply it to your account. So, that's the T. Total depravity. My take on the T. I do believe that we are depraved. So, okay, in the technical definition of the words, if you looked them up in a dictionary, total and depravity, I agree with the definition of those words. I do believe that we are depraved, that our perfect nature that we were created with is corrupted. But I don't think that means... We can't do good things. Uh, there are lost people that stay married, just like there are saved people that don't. There are lost people that don't have affairs. There are lost people that don't commit murder. Uh, but we are totally depraved, even though I don't uh, agree with how far the Calvinistic system takes the total depravity point, that we're not capable of anything good. And that our death infers this inability instead of simply a separation, which I think is all that Scripture indicates by the word death. So although I don't agree with how far the system takes the T, I agree with the actual words. We are totally depraved in the sense that we cannot come to God without God showing us our mess and drawing us to Him. So although I don't agree with everything the T is used to indicate, overall I agree with this point. Maybe just not quite to the degree that they take it. <clears throat> but if you generically just said we're totally depraved, I'm 100% there on, on that simple statement. Okay, the U is unconditional election. That is the U of the tulip. That's the next one, unconditional election. And here's what it says. 
When God elects or chooses, you use those words interchangeably, you to be saved, it is not based on anything that you do or will do, but completely based on God's choice to save. And it's not based on, a lot of people say, well, no, it's foreknowledge. No, this point holds the belief that, no, it's not based on foreknowledge at all. It's not based on whether he knows if you're going to respond or not. It's not based on any of that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, and then we'll go to Deuteronomy 7, uh, 7 and 8. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So some people say, well, I don't believe in election. Well, you have to deal with this word because it's in the scripture. You can't just say you don't believe in election. But you do have to decide biblically what you think election means. You do have to deal with the word. It's very clearly in here. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel, how did he know they were elect? Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And so... Paul knew they were saved. How did he know? Their response to his preaching. It was very clear. And so, of course, then, he's going to say, yeah, uh, you are chosen by God. You're elect. Look at Deuteronomy 7. And it's not based on anything they did. It, he simply knew they were based on their response. Not because, hey, you're a great person. Hey, you deserve this. You deserve that. In fact... Look at Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8. And I know this is talking about Israel and not us, per se, but there's a principle in here that I think is useful to, to point out. So you want Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8? The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, So it's saying God didn't set his love on you, Israel, because you were great or anything about you, but simply because he decided to love you. So what do these passages, is the question, say about your salvation? Well, they clearly say that God chose to save me. Now, some people say that choosing was person A, but not person B. And some people say, no, 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 the choosing was the method that God was going to use. And the method was, the means, was Jesus going to the cross to shed his blood for our sin. And that was the choosing. Uh, a way of summarizing that view would be to say, God made his choice when he put his son on the cross. Now, the choice is yours, whether you're going to accept that or not. Uh, so, these verses say... What do these pastors say about your salvation? God chose to save me, and it didn't have anything to do with me, my character, my quality, how smart I was, my IQ, nothing. My take on the you, unconditional election, is this. Although I don't agree with the Calvinist take on the doctrine of election, which, by the way, in its pure form, would say that God chose you for heaven or hell before you were born. While I don't agree with that take on the definition of election, I do believe, again, just like the T, 
in the actual definition of the words. It's unconditional, and it is a choosing that happens. I do believe in unconditional election in the sense that there's nothing you do or don't do that causes God to draw you to him. And he's the only being in the universe whose foreknowledge, if you think about this, God is the only being in the entire universe whose foreknowledge does not drive his decision making. And with us, that's not going to be true. If I knew that you weren't going to respond well to me or be my friend or whatever, and, and we're all the same. We would all do that. None of us, we wouldn't invest as much time. We'd go, and I'll move on. That person's not going to, God's not like that. So God doesn't look at someone and say, well, since they go to church every week, I'm going to draw them to me. But this other guy who's a rapist, I'm not going to pick him for salvation. God saves rapists too and frees them from their sin. It's not based on any of that stuff. So I believe that God draws everybody. So by definition, there's nothing special about you that made him do that except that he loves you and that he wants you back. It's because I believe that God draws everybody uh, that I think the technical definition of simply these words, although I don't agree with Calvinist's take on the definition of election, uh, is true. It is an unconditional choosing that's going on. Not based on anything about me, simply because he's decided to love me. So I do believe in the unconditional part, and I also believe in a biblical definition of election, but I don't believe that the Calvinist understanding of election is thoroughly biblical. So that um, is my take on that. So yes, but only to a point, because I don't agree with how far they take election. I think they take it too far by going beyond what Scripture is clear about, and they use human logic to take that extra step. And I think we would all agree, no matter which side of the fence you're on on this issue, that human logic is flawed. So I don't do that. Um, let me say this regarding election. This is my take. God made his choice when he put his son on the cross. That was his choosing. Now the choice of what you do with that is up to you. And he leaves that in his sovereignty. He leaves that totally in your hands. So I would agree with this point but I don't agree with how they would define election. So I would say yes to the second one, unconditional election, but only to a point because I don't buy the, the second word, how they define the second word. I think Scripture defines it a little differently or says less than they say about it. Okay, third one. Number three, the L of the tulip. So first you have total depravity, then you have unconditional election. Then you have the third one, limited Atonement. Most people that call themselves four-pointers, they only agree with four of the five out of the tulip, would uh, walk away from this one or have questions or struggles about it. So here's what Leonard Atonement would say. It teaches that the blood of Jesus Christ does not apply to every human being in the world in the sense that his atonement or payment for sin is limited only to those whom he chooses or elects. So if you reject this one, some people say, well, the only other option would be universal salvation, universalism. Well, that's not biblical either. But I don't think that you're forced into that corner, so let me show you why. Look at Romans 9. Romans 9, 1 through 18. 
I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Well, what's he sorrowful about? Well, his countrymen, the Jews, are lost. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed for Christ, for my brethren, for the Jews, my countrymen according to the flesh. Look at verse 5. Of whom are the fathers, from whom according to the flesh. Okay, look at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Look at verse 8. Those who are the children of the flesh... These are not the children of God, in other words, necessarily. So again, he's saying the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. So there's part of the context here that I think drives part of the context of this passage. He says in verse uh, 6, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, verse 7, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham, but, and then he quotes the Old Testament, in Isaac your seed shall be called. In other words, not Ishmael. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, are, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Uh, and then he says, uh, For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come to Sarah, and she will have a son, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children yet not being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to, the, her, to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, this is the verse that uh, they love to use, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And you keep reading. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. In other words, whoever I want to on earth. And that's true. Pretty clear here. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For, uh, so if God shows mercy to one person and not the other, who are we to say, oh, you're not good? Well, he was good in that one act of mercy. Okay, well, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, he's another illustration, Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, so that I may show my power in you, and that the name, my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. So what does this passage teach? And I'm going to make the statement and answer the question, and then I'm going to explain why I think that. God makes choices about how he deals with us on earth regarding blessings, and those choices are up to him. I think that's what it's teaching. And it's talking about earthly blessings... And in some cases, specifically, who he was going to pick to be the lineage for his Messiah. Not talking about salvation. This passage is talking about God choosing the lineage that Jesus would come from. And about using Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. I don't think it's about salvation. In this passage of Romans 9, 10, and 11, we won't read all that, but if you want to, go read 9, 10, and 11, all three chapters. There are three illustrations of God's sovereignty, or his freedom to choose the first one's in 9-7, and it's Isaac, not Ishmael. But what's he talking about? He's not saying Ishmael went to hell and Isaac went to heaven. He's saying Isaac, not Ishmael, was chosen to produce Jesus. That's what he's saying in 9-7, and that's the reference uh, to the Old Testament story. The second illustration of God's sovereignty in Romans 9-10-11 is uh, chapter 9, verse 12-13, and 13, Jacob and Esau. 
He's not saying Jacob went to heaven automatically and Esau went to hell automatically. In fact, Esau experienced a lot of blessing later. Jacob, not Esau, was chosen, again, same thing, to produce Jesus. That's, what, that's the point Paul's making here. He's talking about physical lineage of Israel. The third illustration of God's sovereignty in Romans 9, 10, 11 is in 9, 17. It's Pharaoh. And all he's saying is Pharaoh is chosen to show God's power to lead people to him. That's his name getting out there. The good news of a relationship with him that's possible is broad is a package deal is also broadcast with his name. So if his name's getting out, it's uh, it's leading people to him. It's, it's providing them that shot. So these are not salvation statements. They're purpose statements that deal with earthly physical promises. With Isaac and Jacob... It's not an issue of salvation, but that God chose the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus, to come through Isaac and Jacob, not Ishmael and Esau. There's absolutely no indication from Genesis that Esau is never saved. It simply doesn't make that clear to us one way or the other. And so to read this passage back on that and say we're talking about salvation, I don't think it's biblically consistent. And with Pharaoh, if you go back, and we're not going to do it for time's sake, but with Pharaoh, go back and read Exodus 7 through 11, chapter 7 through chapter 11. What you'll find is, the first five plagues, the narrative says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So that's how it starts, with the first five. And that his heart became hardened. doesn't say who did it. Then, after the sixth plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But then again, after the seventh, Pharaoh hardens his own heart again. And then the story reaches a tipping point where Pharaoh's heart becomes so hardened, thus the verse we read in Hebrews uh, 3, that he's unable to respond to God anymore. And after each one of the last three plagues, but it's not until the last three, that God God hardens Pharaoh's heart again in all three. So God gives Pharaoh multiple opportunities to repent. Most of the plagues, if you read the narrative, the story, he has at least two chances. But he never does. And so he reaches the point where he's unable to respond anymore. And that is a scary thought. And I would refer, refer you back to read Hebrews 3.7 again. It's why there's the urgency. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So, let me say this. If these examples in Romans 9 are about salvation, then 10.1 and 10.21 make absolutely no sense. Look at chapter 10, verse 1 of uh, Romans. What does that say? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Why, if he's saying that they can't all be in Romans 9, if that is what he's saying, why would he turn around in 10.1 and say he wants them all to be? If he just got finished make, uh, declaring theology that they that there's some who don't have a shot at it. That makes absolutely no sense. Paul would be going against his own teaching and his own rhetoric that he's trying to portray here. Look at 10.21. But to Israel, he says, All day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Quoting Isaiah 65.2. So those two verses, 10.1, 10.21, make absolutely no sense. If in 9, Paul's talking about salvation. I just, I just don't think it fits. Now, look at John 3.16-20. through 20. Hang a left. A lot of people love to read John 3.16, but unfortunately, a lot of times we don't study past that. And Jesus tells us the reason why people don't come to him. He gives us one of the reasons. He says, and then we'll look at 2 Peter 3.9, then we'll look at 1 John 2.2. 2. 
So John 3, 16 through 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But Jesus keeps going on and talking and he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, his Son, might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, in other words, why do people uh, not go that the right way? This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Again, back to depravity, but, so that's, that's true. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. Ah, because they don't want to shed light on some of the stuff that they've done. So that's one of the reasons. Jesus, And these are red letters. Jesus is saying, this is one of the reasons people don't come to me. Look at 2 Peter 3.9 in the hard right. Almost to the back there. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, willing not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are no subgroups listed in that. All the elect, all of the chosen, within all the people groups. It doesn't say that. It just says all. So if you take it at face value, it says all. Look at 1 John 2, 2. This is probably the most clear here. 1 John, not John, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right for Revelation and Jude. 1st John 2, 2. And he himself, talking about Jesus, and he himself is the propitiation, the payment for our sins. John's talking to believers. For our sins. And not only ours, but also the whole world. So the question for these passages is, who did Jesus die for according to these passages? Who did he? The whole world. The whole world, not just the elect, not mentioned in any of those passages, and not just the elect within the whole world, which is what some people uh, will say. But the elect are the ones who end up responding. That's who the elect are. So my take on the L is I believe that Jesus' atonement payment for sin. And hear me all the way through. I believe Jesus' atonement or payment for sin is limited in the sense that it is for everybody, but not everybody receives it. If you reject God, then the atonement is not applied to your account. So there's this guy named Rob Bell. He wrote a book, Love Wins. And he basically teaches in that eventually love wins, and by that he means everybody gets saved. Well, how is it loving to let people slide on evil and not have to pay for that? Uh, it's not loving at all to not punish evil. And so all of us innately are created with this craving for justice. We may not have a good definition of what justice is all the time, and it's twisted, yes. Again, our depravity twists it. But we do seek and crave justice, and, and that's not loving to not apply justice to evil. It's not loving at all. I do believe... That his atonement is limited in that it is offered to everybody, but not everybody receives it. 
and this guy Rob Bell who comes along and right loves wins and says everybody gets saved, that is the other side of the coin. That's the other extreme. And that is completely false because the Bible does not say that. But in the sense that Calvinism teaches limited atonement, namely that Jesus did not die for nor offer his blood to everyone, I do not at all agree with it. At all. So I would say, no. Now the issue is, some people would say, well, if if they're five-pointers especially, well, if you say no to this, then you have to believe in universalism or universal salvation or what Rob Bell teaches in Love Wins. And that's just simply not the case. That there is an unlimited atonement, that the offer of the blood is to everyone, but there's limited application of the atonement, that not everyone says yes to it. So sure, just because I reject the L doesn't mean I. the only other option for me is believing every single person in the world gets saved. Now, people who do believe that would reject the L, but rejecting the L doesn't require that you believe that. Then you have irresistible grace. That's the fourth one of the tulip, the I. Irresistible grace. That is the teaching that when God speaks to you, because you are elect or chosen for salvation, you cannot say no to it. Look at Romans 1. Romans 1, 18 through 21. You want that one? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, thanks. So who has the knowledge that God exists, according to what Romans 1 says? Everyone, every human being in the world has the knowledge that God exists. So, atheism, if you think, if you really understand Romans 1, atheism is a choice. I think that this passage is a clear indicator of the choice we all have to hold down this truth of who God is, which was revealed in nature itself. Look at verse 18. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's exactly what it's saying that they do. If it's irresistible, how can I suppress it? Specifically, there's two things about God that's revealed by nature before you even get to Scripture. And they're listed in verse 20. You see them? Understood by the things that are made, His eternal power and His deity, or Godhead. So it's specifically His eternal power and His deity, or the fact that He's God. Those two things about Him, not everything about Him, But those two things about him, Paul says in Romans 1, are clear simply by looking at creation. So you have a knowledge from our existence itself, creation, that God is here, that there is a God, and that he is God, and that he's all-powerful. You have to be powerful to create all this. If you say yes to that, the Bible says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you say yes to that, then God will do whatever it takes. I think he'll bend heaven and earth. He'll do whatever it takes to reach you. How do we know that? One of the greatest biblical illustrations of that is the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, you have this guy from Ethiopia 
How in the world does he have the scroll of Isaiah in his hand? I have no clue how he even got that. Most of the Jews don't even have that. It's not like today where you should go out to a Bible store and buy a Bible. How does he even have the scroll? And then he's wondering what Isaiah 53 says. And then the Holy Spirit and an angel kind of collaborating together had told Philip to leave a, a, in the middle of revival, leave, go stand in the middle of nowhere by a desert road and wait. And then when this guy comes, hey, go over, go run up to his chariot and start the conversation with him. And that's how he explains Isaiah 53, and this guy gets saved. Look at Matthew 13, 18 and 19. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Okay, so the enemy clearly is involved in this too. And he snatches away when you hear truth. You don't respond to it right away. He takes it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but 22, 1 through 14, read through the whole thing. It's a parable of the wedding feast. And parables, by the way, are teaching about what the kingdom of God is like. So, in this parable, he says, The kingdom of heaven, verse 2, is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for a son. This is a parable of, of people coming into the kingdom, being saved. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited. What does it say? They were invited. Okay. Does it say they weren't really invited, but they act? No, it says they were invited to the wedding. And they were what? Not willing. Not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, same people, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cat for killed, and all the things are ready to come to the wedding. He even says, hey, the food's great. You know, come. He tells them a second time, invites them again. But, verse 5, they made light of it. They didn't go. Verse 6, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. <laughs> verse 8, he said to the servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways. As many as you find, invite to the wedding. So invite them. Verse 10, both bad and good. Invite whoever you run into. And then it says in verse 14, For many are called but few are chosen. The point is not that many are called, not all are called. No, the point is that he calls people who say no, and then he invites, he opens it up to, to everybody. And that's this, if you historically trace this parable, is absolutely true. God offers himself to his own people. A lot of them don't receive him, and then he says, I'm opening up to Gentiles. Anybody can come directly to me. Look at 23:37. Same book, Matthew. 23.37, this is one of the clearest statements against irresistible grace that I can think of in all of Scripture. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather. Does he say I wanted to, but really not only half-heartedly? No, I wanted to. God does not double talk here. He's clear. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But what does it say? You were not willing. Their rejection of him does not in any way make him smaller, as some people think it must. No. Because in his bigness, in his sovereignty, he gave them that choice. He didn't have to. He could have not given us a choice at all, but he decided to set it up that way, and I think uh, that was his call. 26 of Matthew, 26, 20 through 25. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve as the last supper. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me 
They were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And then he says this statement, verse 24. The Son of Man, that's a title for himself, indeed goes just as it is written of him. In other words, I have to go to the cross. I'm the only one who can do this. But, it's an adversative conjunction. But, so if I say, I'm going to the grocery store, but you, it doesn't matter what the rest of the sentence is. You know the rest of the sentence is saying, but you're not going to the grocery store. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. In other words, Scripture has said, I'm the one, no one else can do this, I'm the one who's going to go to the cross. But, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered. Judas had already decided to do this. John indicates that he was the group's treasurer, and he was already pilfering money out of the money box. Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. So Jesus clearly is giving Judas another shot, saying, Hey, you don't have to be the one that betrays you. I am the one who has to go to the cross, but you're not the one who has to do this. And he ends up doing it anyway. Look at John 1, 11 through 13. I think this is a clear statement, too. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He came to his own. Who's that? Jews. Jews. But his own did not receive him. So the question is this. What do these passages teach? I think these passages clearly teach that God's calling to salvation is not irresistible. By the way, listen closely because this is, I know, detailed stuff, but it, it matters. If the you, unconditional election, number two, and the I... Irresistible grace, the one we're on right now, number four, are true. If the you and the I are true, then the L, limited atonement, has to be true. The you and the I require the L. So even if you take the L out, the four pointers that say, I'm not so sure about limited atonement. Even if you take the L out, you still have limited atonement as a necessary result if you have the you and the I. Because if his... If, if his election of you is unconditional, and when he chooses you, his grace is irresistible, uh, then the atonement must be limited. It requires the L. So my point in saying that is not to just argue more. It's to say this is a package deal. You can't say four. You'd have to say five. It's a package deal. So a lot of people, they talk about God's sovereignty. Well, I think a good definition of that biblically would be his freedom or God's independence. He's free to do whatever he sees fit. So one of the main objections of this system would be to say he can't be sovereign if you can say no to him. Well, he can be sovereign, I think, if he chooses in his sovereignty to allow me to say no. And here's the deal. If you think that my ability to say no to him when he calls me to be saved threatens his sovereignty in any way, then who has the smaller view of God? That would be my question. Is it a bigger view of God to believe that, A, he cannot maintain his sovereignty if he gives me the ability to choose whether or not I want a relationship with him? Or is it a bigger view of God to believe that, B, he can give me the ability to choose whether or not I want a relationship with him and, that, and have that still line up with the fact that he is sovereign? 
So I think it's clearly B. In fact, look at Matthew 12. Jump over there super quick. I don't think I put that in your notes. But Matthew 12, you can write it down. 31 and 32. The unpardonable sin. A lot of people talk about what this, what they think this is. It's clear what it is. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy. To blaspheme, from the Greek, blasphemy, blasphemao, is what it sounds like in Greek. It's transliterated, but it never, it's not translated. If it was translated, it means to disagree with or to speak against. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about himself, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. So if you disagree with the Holy Spirit, and here's what he's saying, when he comes to you to call you to salvation, then you can't be saved because you've rejected the only offer that you will ever or could ever get, the only way to salvation. You just said no to. So how could you be saved? And that's why they title it the unpardonable sin. It's a perfect title, but that's what the unpardonable sin is. So how can you speak against the Holy Spirit from Matthew 12 if you don't have the ability to resist him? So again, I... I issue with that. Uh, there's the belief in the Calvinist line of thought that God regenerates you, gives you a new nature is what that means, before you repent. So they would say regeneration comes before repentance because every decision you make is going to be based on your nature and you have to have a new nature to repent. So that's their logic. And they're really forced to make this assumption in order to fit free will passages into their theological framework. For example, they'll say... You do have free will, but you will always make those choices based off of your nature, and your nature is a sin nature. It's only when you have the new nature in Jesus, they'll say, that you can choose of your own free will the right things that God wants for you and be repentant at all. Um, and so that requires that regeneration comes before repentance, and that's the problem with it. What's the problem with believing that regeneration has to come? And, and they're bottled in here. They don't have any other options with their five-point system. What's the problem with believing that regeneration has to come before repentance? Why is that wrong? John the Baptist. God's order and, send, and timing, perfect timing, in sending John the Baptist. What was his message to the people? He says, repent. He preaches a message of repentance. Now, God, in his perfect timing and order of things, did God send John the Baptist before Jesus or after Jesus? Before. In fact, the prophecies about him say he was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. Why did God send him before? To prepare the way for Jesus so that people's hearts would be prepared uh, for salvation. So the five-point system, I think, forces them to have this regeneration comes before repentance order. It boxes them in. They don't have any other options. And I think you run into a problem there because Scripture doesn't indicate that at all. In fact, it indicates just the opposite. So my take on the I, I don't agree with it at all. I don't agree with any part. Like all these other ones, I'll agree with part of them, or I'll say I agree with the technical definition of the words, but not as far as the Calvinistic system takes them, or something like that. I'll have a caveat. This one, I don't agree with the words. I don't agree with how they take. I don't agree with any of them. When you read through the whole Bible, I think what you see is you see a story of a God who loves a world 
who, for the most part, refuses to love him back. And I completely agree, back to limited atonement, though, I completely agree with that statement, and that's what he says. He says it'll be like that. He says, narrow is the way to life, and there are few that find it. Wide is the path to destruction, and most people go that way. Okay, last one, number five. Preservation, some people say, but I think the better term is perseverance of the saints. That's the P of tulip. Perseverance of the saints. It teaches that once you're saved by Jesus Christ, not you walked the aisle because your buddy did. No, no, no. Once you're truly saved by Jesus Christ, you're always going to be saved. You cannot lose that salvation. Go to John 10, 27 through 29. This passage also, incidentally, is is precisely why the Church of Christ's official teaching, although some of the churches of Christ have walked away from this a little bit, but the official Church of Christ doctrine that you can lose your salvation uh, is completely false. Look at John 10, 27 through 29. Jesus is talking again here, red letters. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, neither will anyone snatch them out of my hand. No one can take them away from him, is what he's saying. If you're my sheep, nobody's taking you. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So what does this passage teach, John 10, about your salvation? Well, once I'm truly saved by God, then there is nothing that can change that. Nothing and no one has the ability to remove me from his hands. And that's what you clearly see in John 10. So since I think this last point is a little more straightforward, and unlike all the other points, I am in com- so, so, the, so the I, I'm in complete disagreement across the board with no caveats. The P, I'm in complete agreement across the board with no caveats. So my take on the P is uh, the green check mark. So I agree with total depravity, but only to a point. I don't take it as far as they do. Uh, I agree with the technical definition of the words unconditional election, but I don't agree with their, what they think election implies and means. I agree with limited atonement according to the technical definition of the words, but I don't agree with what the system teaches about it, so I, I reject that one. I don't agree at all with irresistible grace, but my take on P would be I am totally in agreement with it. By the way, if God does not hold on to my salvation, if the P is not true, then it's up to me to keep my salvation. And then my salvation is based on works. I'm saved by my own works, my ability to keep it. And that's completely false. Not because it's illogical. That's the problem with some of this framework is it's based on logic. Not because it's illogical, but because it's completely against what Scripture is clear about. So, to wrap up, it doesn't bother me if a Calvinist thinks I'm wrong. I'm totally fine with that. I think they're wrong. And it should not affect our Christian fellowship. What I do have a problem with is the attitude that if I'm not a Calvinist, then I'm somehow not as intellectual or intelligent as they are. Another thing that they're forced to into an artificial box that I don't think is thoroughly biblical on is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Why did God put that there? Calvinists will use that to say that God put the tree in there because he wanted us to sin. 
Because in our sin, God is most glorified by the contrast between our sin and His holiness. My issue with that is that God does not need evil to show how good He is. He doesn't need anything to show the fullness of His beauty. I believe that He put the tree there because He wanted to create beings. I think this is what you see play out in Scripture. He wanted to create beings who would choose to love Him. And that in no way makes Him desperate or less than sovereign. In fact, it's in his sovereignty that he set it up that way. So there, there's also the idea that God can't love anything more than he loves himself. And I have a huge problem with that because it isn't anywhere in the scripture. He points his love at us. Now, when he points his love at us and we respond, yes, I want that, I need that, it ends up in his glory and us glorifying him. But he's doing it because he's aiming his love at us, not because he's aiming his love at himself. One of the most popular guys that teaches this system today uh, is John Piper. And just as an illustration, which I think is goofy, in an article on his website from December 22, 2015, titled, Should Christians Be Encouraged to Arm Themselves? To which he would clearly say, overall in that article, no. He gives an illustration of where a thief, toward the end, you've got to read the whole thing, it's long. He gives an illustration of where a thief breaks into his home and assaults his wife would he use a gun? And he never really gave a clear answer to that question. All he says is that he would personally counsel a Christian not to have a firearm available for such circumstances. <laughs> I really have a problem with taking an idea like this so far that you believe that you can't even stop a guy who's raping your wife because it's God's plan. That to stop him, you might be violating God's plan. And if some knucklehead comes to me and asks to marry either one of my daughters, and he, believe, he takes this kind of belief that far, I'm not giving him my blessing. My answer is going to be, no, you don't even know how to protect my daughter. So, I don't mind Christians disagreeing on some of this stuff. I really don't. But I would just say this, because this is uh, becoming more and more common these days. Being a non-Calvinist inside a local church or inside the seminary where the leaders of the local churches are trained, should not be equivalent to being a conservative in Hollywood. And in some seminaries and academic settings, it is. And I think that's a shame. Now, I only address this issue tonight because someday in your study it will come up. Otherwise, I might not address it in a 25-week discipleship series. Because someone may even sit you down and they will be condescending to you and this is not the right way to do it. Not all of them do this, but just some of them. And they'll make you feel like you're not as smart as, or as theologically sophisticated as they are. And I don't think that you should have to put up with that. And I want you to know what you to believe. And I want you to base what you believe on Scripture uh, and be equipped to at least understand what you believe and why you believe it. So, if I had to sum all this up, I would be closest to a three-pointer personally here. But since the framework of this belief system is such a package deal with the five points, and I don't identify as two-point or a three-point Calvinist because I don't believe in the whole thing, if I can't believe in all of it, then I personally am not going to connect myself to it. And so that's why I don't. It's not because I don't agree with any of the content inside the system, because I certainly do agree with some of it. But it would be like if I was in Congress and there was a bill it's called pork. They add pork to a bill when they're trying to pass it through Congress. 
you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of a deal. Hey, say yes to this bill, but there's this extra stuff in here that has nothing to do with the main purpose of the bill. And so, so if I'm in Congress, I'm voting no to that, and my constituents are going to call me and say, why'd you vote no to the pro-life bill? And I'm going to say, well, I am pro-life, but it had all this junk in it, and I told them, you go write a clean bill, and I'll vote yes on that. So that's kind of how I view this deal. Because there's so much in it that I don't think is biblical, I'm not going with it. Even though there are things in it that are absolutely biblical. I have good friends who are Calvinists, but they don't get too crazy with this and take it to extremes. Like saying they would let someone, they weren't sure if they would stop someone assaulting their wife. We disagree even about this issue between the church staff. We still enjoy peace and friendship and the fellowship that we have in Christ. So if you're a Calvinist, I'm okay with it, as long as you're okay with the fact that I'm not. And again, I hit this one more time, I think it's fascinating to me that God is the only being in the universe, and I think this upplays His sovereignty, not downplays it, that God is the only being in the universe whose foreknowledge doesn't determine His decision-making. So, to wrap up, at the very end of your notes, God initiates your salvation, I think that's clear from Scripture. You cannot be saved without Him coming to you with the author of salvation. I think that's clear. Everyone, Romans 1, has the knowledge of God's power and deity, those two things, but there are people who will choose to reject that knowledge. Number three, disagreement over this issue is not a good reason to break the fellowship that we have in Jesus. So we're out of time. I'll close this up with prayer. Um, know what you believe and know why you believe it about this and then move on. Don't waste too much time here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all that you tell us in your word. We do know that there are some things that are difficult to handle. And Peter even says that, referencing Paul's letters. He said that, hey, there are some things that are difficult to understand in this book. And that's absolutely true. And for us, regarding this issue tonight, I think the main reason it's difficult is because we lack an eternal perspective and a viewpoint that you have. And so things that seem to be contradictory uh, to us are actually not. Um, there is a tension there between some of these truths, but they're still both true. And in your mind, it makes perfect sense and fits, uh, even though in our minds sometimes it's hard to wrap our minds around it all. So, God, we trust you, that you're sovereign, we love you, and we pray that uh, we would take this understanding of this issue we nail it down based on scripture and not on anything else. Logic system, not on philosophy that goes outside of scripture, not on someone's pressure to, to adopt a certain number of points here. That we would just, uh, between you and us, uh, study for ourselves and figure out what your word says. And uh, next week as we look at witnessing and we wrap this entire series up, um, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for what we're going to cover that week as we take the next step and take this and turn around and multiply it. We, we're not just here to learn this information. That's not why we're doing this. So, Lord, um, I pray that you would make those differences in our lives that only you can, and I ask this in Jesus' name.